Welcome to Prism Bible, where we learn the Bible so we can live the story. God has a part for each of us to play, and to understand our purpose, we need to grasp the big, beautiful story that's unfolding in history. Join us today as we shift south to the kingdom of Judah. David's dynasty remains in power, but war drums begin beating as the prophets announce exile and the destruction of Jerusalem. You're listening to Prism Bible. The northern kingdom of Israel followed a tragic trajectory. They went from idolatry with the two golden calves to exile from the promised land. Though God sent the prophet Elijah, among others, the kings of Israel continued to lead the people into further wickedness. Finally, God judged the northern kingdom of Israel by allowing the Assyrian Empire to conquer them in 722 BC. If the northern kingdom was speeding toward judgment by God, however, the southern kingdom was drifting to a similar place. The north may have been exiled, but the south wouldn't be too far behind. The southern kingdom of Judah has the same downward direction, but there are brief periods of turning back to God and following His law. Despite the general downward drift, several of the kings of Judah are described as doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as their father David had done. Among these righteous kings, was one who ruled Judah many generations after the split of the kingdom, a king by the name of Hezekiah. Hezekiah is a king in Judah during the time that the northern kingdom of Israel is being conquered by the Assyrians. And as you can imagine, once the Assyrians got a taste of victory in the north, they want more. Soon after conquering Israel, they turn their attention south to Judah. And the question is, can little Judah withstand this powerful empire? Well, the short answer is no. Judah couldn't withstand them effectively. In fact, almost all the territory of Judah is conquered by the Assyrians, with the notable exception of the city of Jerusalem, the city of the temple, and the city where Hezekiah continued his rule. The Assyrians figured, however, that it was only a matter of time, and they set the city to siege. Surely starvation and depression would defeat the enemy for them, and soon the armies of the Assyrians encamp and begin attempts to get the city of Jerusalem to surrender through propaganda efforts. These efforts take the form of heralds, or announcers, who come close to the city wall and speak in the language of the people of Judah. They tell of all the victories of the Assyrian army, and they brag that nothing can withstand their powerful force. They mock the gods of all the people that they have already conquered, before beginning to mock Yahweh, the god of Judah. Defying the king and God, the leader of the Assyrian army even says this, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, and do not let him mislead you like this. Do not believe him, for no god of any nation or kingdom has been able to deliver his people from my hand or from the hand of my fathers. How much less will your god deliver you from my hand? Even more of the Assyrians say this, just as the gods of the nations didn't deliver their people from my hand, so the god of Hezekiah will not deliver his people from my hand. And the Assyrians called out loudly in Hebrew to the people of Jerusalem who were on the wall, to frighten and to terrify them in order to capture the city. They spoke against the god of Jerusalem as they had spoken against the gods of the peoples of the earth, 
the work of human hands. This is a critical point. The Assyrians speak about the true God as if he were fake like the fake gods of all the other nations. They mock God as a falsehood, and the good king Hezekiah knows that this is an affront to God. It's offensive to him. Hezekiah the king appeals to this very fact as he desperately prays to God for deliverance of the city. He prays, O Yahweh, God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You made the heavens and the earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to the words that Sennacherib has sent to defy the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste these nations and their lands. They have cast their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods, but only wood and stone, the work of human hands. And now, O Lord our God, please save us from his hand, so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. Perhaps needless to say, God heard this mocking and he heard Hezekiah's prayer. God would put a stop to this mocking, and as we've seen him do time and time again for his people, he would miraculously provide victory for his city. Listen to what God says to Hezekiah through a prophet and its results. This is what the Lord says about the king of Assyria. He will not enter this city or shoot an arrow into it. He will not come before it with a shield or build up a siege ramp against it. He will go back the way he came, and he will not enter this city, declares the Lord. I will defend this city and save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And that very night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 men in the camp of the Assyrians. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. God defeats the Assyrian army without a single man from Jerusalem meeting it in battle. He rewards the trust of the people of Judah with victory when defeat looked more than certain. God answered Hezekiah's righteous leadership of Judah and his prayers for the people. Despite this amazing deliverance, however, the downward drift continues, even in this great king's life. As Hezekiah aged, pride began to sneak into his heart, and sin showed itself in his actions. We should never forget the ease with which these greats of the Bible fall into sin, and it should be a sobering reminder to us. Whether it was Abraham, David, Solomon, or here with Hezekiah, each of them saw the amazing deliverance and promises of God, and yet sin still reared its ugly head in their lives. For Hezekiah, it happened when he was sick. The king of Babylon sent him a kind letter along with gifts. Apparently, this Babylonian king wanted to not only gain the favor of Hezekiah, but also create a short-term ally against the Assyrians. Hezekiah proudly receives the messengers from Babylon, but he unwisely shows them all the spoils and riches that would come to any future conqueror of Jerusalem. Hezekiah received the envoys and showed them all that was in his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, and the precious oil, as well as his armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his palace or in all his dominion that Hezekiah didn't show them. In response to this proud display from Hezekiah, we sadly hear from a prophet 
who gives a picture of the future for Judah. The prophet says this soon after the departure of the messengers. Hear the word of the Lord. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your fathers have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord, and some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, will be taken away to be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. The prophet gives a glimpse of the grim near future for Judah, an exile not in Syria like for Israel, but in Babylon, a city that perhaps we remember from long ago, a city that got its name because of confusion, a city notable for its pride and notable for its downfall. The return of Babylon is imminent, but not yet. After Hezekiah's death, we see his son Manasseh rule over Judah, and in contrast to the generally faithful rule of his father, Manasseh is described like this. He did evil in the sight of the Lord by following the abominations of the nations that the Lord had driven out from before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had destroyed, and he raised up altars for Baal. He made an Asherah pole as King Ahab of Israel had done, and he worshipped and served all the host of heaven. And finally, a particularly harsh indictment. Manasseh led the people astray so that they did greater evil than the nations that the Lord had destroyed from before the Israelites. Despite having a godly father, Manasseh is not a good king. Not only does he lead his people into the idolatry of the fake gods, but he even sacrifices his own son as an offering to them. He is a wicked man. And as becomes a theme, the prophets express impending doom for Judah to be brought about by God. Through a prophet, God says, Behold, I am bringing such calamity upon Jerusalem and Judah that the news will reverberate in the ears of all who hear it. But not yet. Even with Manasseh's wickedness, God's patience endures. And two generations later, we see one final national revival under a king named Josiah. He is described like this. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father, David. He did not turn aside to the right or to the left. Apparently under Manasseh and his son, things in Judah had gotten so bad that the people actually forgot the law that God had given the nation. The law had been so forgotten, in fact, that the people no longer even knew its contents. God's word, however, would bring revival. One day in the temple, one of the priests finds a copy of the law, and he comes and reads it to Josiah the king. In response to the reading, Josiah tears his clothes, immediately mourning and recognizing the evil that the nation had fallen into. Just as quickly, he leads a national renewal of their covenant commitment to the Lord. The kingdom of Judah cleanses the temple from its evil practices and even celebrates the Passover feast, remembering how God delivered his people from the final plague in Egypt. It's in response to Josiah's leadership that God says this through a prophet. Because your heart was tender, and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its people, that they would become a desolation and a curse, and because you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, I will indeed gather you to your fathers, and you will be gathered to your grave in peace. Your eyes 
will not see all the calamity that I will bring on this place. It seems that with each revival that occurs in the nation, God delays the inevitable exile that awaits Judah. But the time is drawing near. It's in two generations following Josiah's death that the city of confusion finally comes for the city of God. Babylon conquers Jerusalem in 586 BC, destroying the great temple built by Solomon hundreds of years before. Babylon carries off the wealth of Jerusalem, the temple vessels of worship, many of the people, and the king's descendants. All happened just as God had foretold through the prophets. The drift of Judah into disobedience finally ended with the conquering of the southern kingdom. Judah would now go into exile and wait for God to somehow deliver the nation from its bondage. God had said to the people long ago before giving them the law, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And soon, God would add to his resume of deliverance. Somehow, some way, he would deliver the nation not from Egypt, but from exile. The twelve tribes of Israel fulfilled exactly what Moses had foretold. He had said to them, Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart in your abundance, you will serve your enemies that the Lord will send against you in famine, thirst, nakedness, and destitution. The Lord will bring a nation from afar, from the ends of the earth, to swoop down upon you like an eagle, a nation whose language you will not understand, a ruthless nation with no respect for the old and no pity for the young. They will besiege all the cities throughout your land until the high and fortified walls in which you trust have fallen. You who were as numerous as the stars in the sky will be left few in number because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Just as it pleased the Lord to make you prosper and multiply, so also it will please him to annihilate you and destroy you, and you will be uprooted from the land that you are entering to possess. Centuries earlier, Moses had set before them the law, the blessing and the curse. And after centuries of struggle against God, the nation chose not obedience and blessing, but disobedience and cursing. Join us next time as we consider the prophets and the promises of God. Where does the Bible story go now that the people of God have been cursed and cast from the land? If God's nation failed, who can succeed? Don't forget to download the Prism Bible app, our mobile app to help you learn the Bible. In addition to this podcast content, we have Bible readings, summaries, and quiz questions on the app to help you get the most out of every lesson. Prism Bible is a project of the Bible Literacy Foundation, a nonprofit dedicated to helping you learn the Bible.